The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. And welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Polly Smythe, the Labour Movement correspondent for Navarra Media. We talked about how strikes achieve their aims and the importance or otherwise of public support. We also discussed the new anti-strike law being brought in by the Conservative government, what its consequences may be and whether it will have the chilling effect on industrial action that the Sunak government hopes for. Finally, we talked about the prospects for the current public and private sector strikes in Britain and whether either the unions or the government have a path to victory. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is They Call It Love, The Politics of Emotional Life by Alva Gottby. Caring for others is essential. Without it, capitalism would cease to function. In They Call It Love, Alva Gottby investigates this work that makes a haven in a heartless world, examining who performs this labour, how it is organised and how it might change. Drawing on the thought of the feminist wages for housework movement, Gottby demonstrates that emotion is a key element of capitalist reproduction. The work of love is a feminist problem and it demands feminist solutions. They Call It Love, The Politics of Emotional Life by Alva Gottby is out now from Verso Books, and part of their January Verso Book Club reading. And now to today's interview. Polly Smythe is the Labour Movement correspondent for Navarra Media, and her work is supported by the London branch of the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. Her recent article for The Guardian, which we discussed in the interview, is titled We've Forgotten That Strikes Are About Winning Disputes, Not Courting Public Opinion. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. So we tend to assume that we know how strikes work and and where the leverage of organised workers lies. But the effectiveness of a given strike is influenced by all sorts of factors from the sector in which the strike is occurring, the mood of the workers taking industrial action and the extent to which they can materially afford to go on strike, the mobilising capacities of specific unions, the degree of intransigence on the part of bosses and governments, how much disruption a strike causes, and of course the extent to which profits are lost, uh, a factor not directly relevant to public sector strikes, even if they indirectly impact businesses. Could you talk a bit about your understanding of how strikes achieve workplace victories and what you consider to be some common misconceptions? There's an American historian called Gabriel Wynan who has this um, brilliant essay in M Plus One um, that's called Who Works for the Workers? He sets out different ways in which people wield collective power and he gives examples like lobbying officials, filing a lawsuit, participating in a political campaign or maybe even engaging in a direct action like a rally, a march or an occupation. 
And he sets out you know, the fact that these approaches demand not only completely different skill sets, but they're really hard to do simultaneously. And, and he gives the example of running a tent city like Occupy while also trying to lobby a state senator who's now pissed off about the fact that the tent city is raising issues that could interfere with his re-election. So in general, you have organisations that do lobbying and lawsuits and don't tend to do direct action and vice versa. And historically, Winant says that, you know, organised labour is the only movement that attempts to participate in virtually all kinds of collective action. Um, And he says, you know, the two souls of unions are reliable bureaucracy and mass spirit. But being a pamphleteer and a lawyer, being an agitator and an accountant, you know, that requires strategy strategy about what is uh, effective and what isn't, you know, can't be boiled down to a mathematical equation. You know, obviously, all the things you pointed out in your question influence um, how strikes play out. And strategy isn't something that is just out there. Strategy is something that is, you know, is is learned, is something that is handed down, you know, historically through um, vibrant um, and active shop steward networks. That's a little bit more difficult um, in this strike wave because a lot of the people who are striking are striking for the first time and so are, you know, inherently kind of inexperienced. Added to that fact, you know, um, now we have financialization, globalization of capital. It's not always necessarily clear um, that employers' wealth depends straightforwardly on workers' production. So working out a strategy, you know, picking the right target and then working out how to exploit that target's vulnerability or leverage is really difficult. You know, unions essentially are trying to inflict a cost on the employer through their disruption that is greater than what it costs the employer to meet the workers' demands. And that's the same in public sector disputes, even when there's not a profit motive. There was a really good um, notes from below article recently by Charlie McNamara, who um, broke down you know what the other kinds of costs are that aren't just financial, and you know they can be reputational, political, psychological. Those are all the kinds of costs that unions can try and impose. And I, I think Charlie gives the example of um, you know a CEO who is trying to appease an incredibly anti-worker, anti-trade union key group of shareholders, and so that influences the levels of disruption costs that the CEO is kind of willing to accept and you know, they could be marginally higher than what it would cost him to actually meet the, employ- um, the union's demands. So strikes are about workers' ability to cause significant disruption costs and that looks really different in every different workplace, you know, for instance with the RMT because when they take a strike the next day the trains are in all the wrong places, strike action can have consequences beyond just a strike day. Um, whereas, you know, what we've seen in the UCU dispute is that when um, academic workers have taken strikes, often they're just expected to catch up on the work that they've missed on strike days further down the line. So, you know, what it looks like to to kind of cause disruption is, is really different. And what works in one place might not work in another. And so the work and the skill of, of being in a trade union and being a unionist is locating those pinch points, locating those places of leverage. Just on the point about the differences between public and private sector strikes, could you could you expand on that a little more? And, and what are the particular challenges that affect public sector strikes versus uh, private sector? So obviously, in in the private sector, you have the kind of tool or the lever of leverage that is profit. And so by not working, you are directly impacting the employer by impacting their ability to make money. Um, And that's not always completely straightforward. You know, something that we've seen in the RMT dispute is the fact that the government are indemnifying train operating companies. And so part of the RMT's discussion has been about saying, well, it's been difficult for them to harm train operating companies when the government are kind of reimbursing them. 
So it's not always completely straightforward. But when you have a public sector dispute, and because there's not profit involved, and you are in direct dispute with the government, it's slightly different. You know, the public then are far more involved because the public rely on the public sector. And so you're impacting them in a slightly different way to private sector disputes because they are using the services that the public sector are creating. Presumably, even with public sector strikes, that still has a certain knock-on effect on on private businesses, because of course businesses need the public infrastructure to, uh, you know, convey workers to workplaces and the various forms of infrastructure that business depends on. Totally, yeah, and you know, and it's interesting that the private sector disputes that we're seeing are often in formerly public. Um, or formerly nationalised industries. So, you know, um, we were seeing um, on the railways and we're also seeing, you know, in the Royal Mail. Um, So a lot of the private sector union membership is actually in formerly nationalised industries. And yeah, you're right that sometimes you can draw too much of a distinction. And I think also um, that distinction can be used to kind of pit these workers against each other. And what happens in, you know, in the public sector has a knock-on for um, what's happening in the private sector, definitely. In an article that you've written that's due to appear in The Guardian, you write that the role played by public support is assumed. The alignment of public sentiment with the strikers moves them toward a victory, while backlash against the unions risks their defeat. However, the relative levels of sympathy drawn by different workers doesn't suddenly translate itself into leverage. Can you explain why the role of public opinion in industrial disputes is more complex than is typically supposed? Yes, in in that article, I begin by saying that I had an experience at Christmas, which I imagine many people had, where I got into discussing the strikes with a relative. And my relative was talking about how he had supported the RMT, but due to the fact that they were taking strike action over Christmas, he could no longer bring himself to to support them. And um, the thing that was interesting in this discussion was that he didn't perceive that as a kind of matter of personal opinion, but he saw his change of heart as being gravely significant for the RMT as a whole, because if people like him weren't supporting them, well then how could they expect to win their industrial dispute? In that opinion is a is a kernel of um, something that's in, in much of the wider coverage, the idea that strikes are kind of determined by some extent by polling and need to keep public on the side you know and that can be really explicit there was an article in the, in the independent recently where the author said that public opinion you know ultimately decides if how and when politicians capitulate in public sector strikes but it's also kind of much more implicit it's implicit in the constant references to polling it's implicit in uh, mick lynch being asked if he's concerned about public support draining away the longer disputes go on it's present in mick whelan who's the aslef um, general secretary you know being asked whether um, it's difficult to get the public on side in a dispute about train drivers' pay when they're, you know, paid more than nurses. So it's 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 kind of there. Um, and so what I wanted to do with the article was unpick what is the role that's played by public opinion because it definitely does play a role, and we can't just kind of put it to one side. But I think you have to unpick the role that it does play um, without kind of giving it too much credence. And so good public opinion clearly does not immediately translate itself into leverage. You know, that is actually captured basically in the NHS strike chant, claps don't pay the bills, because, you know, we can see that the fact that, you know, nurses are kind of universally beloved in all polling has not translated into a pay rise and, and kind of, you know, the national expression of, um, of, our, of our love for nurses hasn't helped them industrially. And so I think that what the article wanted to do was unpick um, the fact that public support can be really important in disputes, but when that public support is mobilised and plays a role rather than 
is kind of um, just banked upon. And and I also touched upon in the article, you know, the fact that workers are people, you know, and they are clearly concerned and aware of public opinion, you know, especially when you have government ministers who are trying to frame workers as risking lives, um, you know. Um, in, when I when I go on to picket lines and I talk to workers, people are very anxious and very attuned to the national discussions around strikers and how they're being perceived. And that can have that can have a real impact. You know, that can impact worker morale, that can impact turnout, that can impact commitment to strikes. So I don't want the article to say that public opinion plays no role, but I think that we really need to interrogate the role that it's playing. And on that point about the way in which negative public opinion affects striking workers. Do you see much diversity in in the extent to which workers in different sectors are more or less easily swayed by shifts in in public opinion? I mean, the the stereotype of the RMT is very much that this is a union which is more hardened and and will just you know continue to fight even if they feel that public opinion is not necessarily with them. And obviously, the absence of of public support shouldn't be a reason for them uh, not to strike. But do you see much variation? And do you think there are ways in which unions can actually successfully sort of um, harden themselves to to that influence, which might have a sort of demoralising effect? That's a really interesting question, yeah. And, you know, um, yeah, there's definitely the perception around the RMT that they've kind of taken up the the Millwall approach of, you know, nobody likes us, we don't care. And I think that that is a good way to position yourself in, in strikes. I think, you know, that the extent to which you can kind of say, no, my my kind of my right to withdraw my labour and my cause is, is worthy and I'm not going to be concerned about what, you know, X, Y and Z person may or may not think about me. I think that's the right way to approach industrial disputes. And I think also kind of I just want to caveat this by saying, you know, not all disputes are nationwide disputes. You know, not all disputes are the RMT in dispute with train operating companies and Network Rail or, or you know, the Communication Workers Union in dispute with Royal Mail. A lot of strikes happen at a kind of a, a smaller and local level, don't necessarily attract public attention. And that is not an impediment to them winning. You know, I think it's important to to say that there are kind of hundreds of strikes that, that don't get um, public opinion. Um, you know, off the top of my head, um, you know, Unison, Barnet, Council Housing Repairs workers recently, or Cadbury workers out with Unite. So, uh, yeah, I do think that definitely unions who have more experience of going out on, on strike are potentially better kind of rehearsed almost at, um, at hearing negative public opinion and being able to cope with that. And I think that for workers who aren't in unions that have histories of going out on strike, like, um, you know, particularly Royal College of Nursing, that might be harder. Um, I guess it probably also um, has something to do with the different jobs that people do. Um, I think that for nurses, it's, it's kind of arguably more difficult to hear that they are selfishly risking people's lives than it is for a train driver to hear that they are preventing commuters from getting to work. So I think there are there are kind of other factors at play there as well. Yes, I suppose another case might be the teachers, although it's not quite as dramatic as, as the nurses. Nonetheless, they have a more direct relationship with, with parents and, of course, students as well. And, and so there's, they are pulled in, in different directions in, in a way which is perhaps not quite as true of, of transport workers. Completely, yeah. And and that's kind of part of how public opinion is important is, you know, that um, obviously workers are engaged in a narrative struggle 
to say, you know, our members are in dispute and our members have these grievances and then to coalition build and say, and our grievances are also your grievances. So, you know, teachers being a good example there, um, whether that's about classroom sizes, you know, we saw over the pandemic, whether that was about our schools, places we should be sending children, you know, when we're still experiencing really big waves of COVID. Um, and so by connecting members' grievances to those of kind of the publics, you know, unions are involved, engaged in a narrative struggle to direct dissatisfaction away from them and their members towards the employers or the government. It's sometimes suggested that unions should take action short of strikes, which disrupt management and employers without impacting the public so directly, such as work to rule, where workers aim to do no more than what is stipulated by the rules of their contract or job and follow time-consuming rules that are not normally enforced. And it's an idea that's become perhaps more salient with the rise of so-called quiet quitting, a form of informal work to rule where refusal to do more than what is necessary is undertaken on a, on a uh, less collective and more individualised basis. What's your opinion of the effectiveness of work to rule and other forms of action short of actual strikes? And do you think there's anything to the argument that it's a better form of action because it causes less disruption for the public? I think just as a kind of note of caution, um, you know, recently when Mick Lynch was asked, is he worried about draining public support? You know, he said, my members are the public. Um, and so um, the idea that unions need to sort of curtail their action um, so it doesn't hurt the public. I think we yeah, it's, it's it's good to push back on a framing that necessarily sees workers as a kind of apart from or opposed to the public. And that being said, you know, going back to what we just were talking about earlier, you, you know, unions are in the business of trying to secure wins for their members by creating maximum disruption using all the different kinds of costs that they can find if uh, you know work to rule or um, or action short of strike is a kind of sufficient pinch point in disputes then I think so be it um, you know and also I think that you know work to rule can be really disruptive you know overtime bans on the railways can basically mean pretty much no trains on Sundays but I think that we've got to be careful not to put that forward as an option because we're kind of inherently saying, well, unions should be doing this because they need to keep the public on the side. Because, you know, for all the reasons we've kind of already spoken about, about public support, you know, I don't necessarily think that keeping the public on side is the thing that wins disputes. The things that wins disputes is, you know, this ability to maximise disruption and that, you know, work to rule can be a good and important part of uh, an industrial strategy but it shouldn't be the industrial strategy unions are taking in order to kind of minimize public disruption. Going back to the point you make about the sheer variety of the different ways in which unions try to achieve their goals. So in your article for The Guardian you describe Unite's efforts to prevent the fire and the hire of 500 bus drivers in Manchester by the transport company Go Ahead. Can you talk a bit about the strategy they use to win their struggle? So Unite have been doing this for a little while, kind of pioneered this approach they call Leverage, which essentially takes the company um, like Go Ahead and it forensically breaks down where the union is able to find leverage by looking at the company as a whole. And that is by looking at, you know, the company's directors, the company's directors, directors, shareholders, clients, suppliers, likely future clients, emerging markets, communities within which the businesses are in but also kind of the political structures and it goes much deeper than just naming and shaming although that can be a byproduct and instead is really a, a proper you know industrial strategy that's also you know it's very um it's sort of very intensive um you know it takes a lot of time and it takes quite a lot of people 
um, to kind of give an example, um, in Manchester, um, the transport company Go Ahead were um, looking to fire and rehire about 500 bus drivers. And so through forensically analysing the company, Unite found that they were simultaneously bidding for a massive rail contract in Norway. And so Unite, you know, following the money, um, spoke to Norwegian politicians. They informed them about what, what Go Ahead were doing in the UK. And not long after the CEO of the parent company said that they wouldn't be using fire and rehire. So that kind of shows you how Unite are being really creative. And I think it's important to sort of caveat this and say that uh, Unite tend to use this not so much in pay disputes, um, but really um, in cases around um, like victimization or dismissal when you're faced with a really aggressive employer. Shan Graham has been very clear that this is kind of a strike plus approach. You don't want to use this to kind of bypass the need for um, a strike and you want to have a strike ready workplace. That being said, this is an approach that kind of has to have high involvement from shop stewards. So you're not bypassing the workplace, but actually that, you know, workers feel this is a decision that they are themselves involved with. If we move on to the current strikes, the government is due to bring in new anti-strike laws with the minimum service levels bill, despite Britain, of course, having some of the most restrictive union laws in Europe. Can you explain what the new minimum service legislation is likely to entail? So... In the UK, there is no right to strike. Instead, what there is are protections that are afforded both to trade unions and to striking workers if action is deemed lawful. Um, and there are already lots of requirements on trade unions to make sure that action is lawful. Um, and so this legislation is an attempt to build on that, to kind of increase on the requirements um, needed to make action lawful. Um, and they're doing so by imposing minimum service levels, which basically are a requirement on a trade union that a certain and agreed proportion of members will have to work on strike days despite having voted to take industrial action. Um, so for ambulance, um, rail and fire, the government will be imposing those minimum service levels. But in other public sectors like education, those minimum service levels will be imposed only if a voluntary um, agreement isn't reached. It's absolutely fraught with problems. Kind of firstly, it's not clear at all what a minimum service level means or looks like to operate let's say um, 40% of the service on railways would require far more than 40% of signalers to come to work and so actually working out what this means in each different industry is really difficult secondly unions have said this will incentivize other kinds of behavior you know if strikes are going to be ineffective well then unions will be working to rule um, or you know taking action short of a strike which can be, like we've already said, really disruptive and also means that disputes will probably just drag on for much longer. But then not only that, something that's kind of incredibly ironic about the government's proposal is that a big reason that health unions like the Royal College of Nursing are striking is because they are unable to meet safe staffing levels day in, day out due to chronic staff shortages. Mm, no minimum service level from management. Yeah. So, yeah. So then they, so that's sort of, um, you know, what the, the, the proportion of workers that they need to be able to sort of do their job, basically. So, you know, that's sort of saying we want, you know, we need X number of nurses to X number of patients. And that that ratio is just kind of not met all the time because there aren't enough staff. And now the government are trying to claim that these minimum service levels they're imposing on, on um, health workers are from, for public safety. Pat Cullen, the Royal College of Nursing General Secretary, has said that we want safe staffing levels 
year round, not just on strike days. So with a Tory majority, the legislation will will get through the House of Commons and will probably take a long time in the House of Lords um, to be clarified just due to the incredibly complicated nature of the, the legislation. Paul Nowak, the Trade Union Congress General Secretary, has already said he'll challenge it in court. And there's actually already a legal challenge being brought by 11 unions and coordinated by the TUC to the government's um, new anti-strike legislation that allows agency workers um, to be brought into strike break. So there's definitely a sense that, um, you know, unions want to challenge this. As you say, it it seems likely that this legislation will drag because of the various challenges in in the Lords and legal challenges as well. And and some are saying it, it will take minimally something like six months. Does that sound realistic to you? And do you think knowledge that the new law is coming will cause the unions to escalate in the coming weeks and months as they see a you know, potentially closing window of opportunity? I think what we'll see is potentially, you know, if it takes six months to um, to, to be implemented, you know, we're, I think we're only about 18 months away from a, a general election. And I can't imagine, I, I, you know, I wonder whether employers will sort of take this as the kind of final act of a, of a government that's you know out of control in its approach to industrial relations and i think that employers probably are reticent to spurn all their goodwill um with trade unions by battling it out you know and i think that's what it would be i think it would be a real battle in terms of who was going to go to work you know because in each workplace you know if you let's say you take a school and you know you say all right well 20 percent of teachers have to come in you know how are you picking those teachers you know and even if you say 20% of teachers have to come in on a strike day and the strike days on a Monday and then those teachers say oh sorry I've got a bit of a headache I won't be coming in I'm feeling a bit poorly you know how do you prove that they are that they're not avoiding work because they don't want to because they you know they voted to take strike action so I think that employers will probably be reticent to really fall out with the unions over this yeah and in terms of the union response um we've just seen the national education union reach its ballot um, you know reach a successful ballot um for, for strike action in in schools the fire brigades union are still balloting so i don't think there's a sense this is kind of slowing things down or um, stop unions from taking the action that they're taking now or even um that they kind of need to escalate their action to try and get ahead of this before it comes in I think that unions think this is, this legislation is, is unworkable and I can see it taking longer than six months to be agreed. We've seen that there are divisions within the government with some in the cabinet wanting to see the government settle. Do you think the government can ride out this strike wave without making any significant concessions? What do you predict? What would it take to tip the balance in workers' favour and, and, and what's the government's potential route to victory as you see it? I think the government's um, response to the strike wave has been really odd in some senses, because I think on the one hand, you have a government that's trying to position themselves as tough on strikes, you know, kind of taking on, you know, quote unquote, greedy trade union barons. There's some extent to which the the legislation kind of plays out being a bit, a bit Thatcher incarnate. But then on the other hand, you also have a government that is, you know, really cowardly, that is hiding behind independent, you know, or supposedly independent pay review bodies and saying that, you know, their hands are tied and that, that they can't um, resolve these disputes. So I think it's quite difficult in terms of working out which approach the government are kind of going to lean on because they're trying to lean on both, off, sometimes trying to lean on both simultaneously. Um, and I think it's not working. You know, I think you can't say we're not responsible for the strikes but we're also responsible for, you know, them when we're, we're able to position ourselves as, as kind of being tough on them. Um, I don't you know, the public just fundamentally don't buy it. Um, so, yeah, so one of the lines that kind of gets frequently repeated is this 
idea that um you know the government can't settle with one group because that risks them settling with all you know i think it's it's kind of important to point out that the government actually have already settled one public sector dispute um back in the summer criminal barristers voted to accept a renewed pay deal from the government admittedly a lot of young barristers are really unhappy about that pay deal um but you know settling with the barristers has not created an inevitability that all other public sector strikes have to be um settled you know what i think is really being expressed when that is said you know, when it said that the government can't settle with one group, is not that, oh, it would be a bit unfair to give nurses X and paramedics Y. Really what that sentiment means is if the government settles with one group, does that risk another group, um, you know, escalating their strike action or kind of entering into dispute with the government because they think they've got a good chance of winning? Um, and that ultimately comes down to whether workers are in a strong enough place to to kind of create that leverage. You know, that's not something we can kind of take as a given if you look at healthcare, um, you know, Unison uh, only passed the threshold at eight out of 262 NHS trusts. Royal College midwives ballot fell short in England, you know, admittedly falling short of, you know, incredibly stringent um, kind of anti-strike legislation from the Conservatives, but it still fell short. So I think it's difficult knowing, um, you know, what will, ha- what will happen. Um, I think we're kind of still seeing the extent to which the public sector strike wave will grow. But I definitely think that there is a motivation from the government that, you know, they don't want to let the strikes be seen to win. You know, that's what Ken Clark said back at the start of um, the RMT strikes last summer. He said, you know, the RMT can't be seen to win. I think the government also just kind of has no institutional memory with dealing with strikes. You know, I think that they themselves are floundering because they don't know, they don't understand, you know, trade union disputes. Um, and that, that was kind of evident in some of Grant Shapps' 16-point um, plan that he had to sort of break the unions. A lot of them sort of didn't really speak to the reality of, of how industrial disputes were playing out. So I think that we need to see who else kind of, you know, what, what other public sector unions join in the fray and how the public disputes continue to play out, really. On the point about the high ballot thresholds that were brought in under the Cameron Osborne government, so obviously this was done in order to make it harder for unions to strike. But do you think in in a way it might have some potentially favourable outcomes because it forces the unions to mobilise their members and and, and not to rely on a sort of more passive membership because, you know, they simply have to go out and, and win support for these strikes? That's what Mick Lynch literally said to me. Yeah, when I was when I was speaking to him, he said, "You know, unions have had to respond to this legislation and literally just get better at communicating with their members, being in touch with their members." You know, and he was saying that he thinks that yeah, now the RMT are in a much better position at balloting because they've just literally had to be um, in a better position at balloting, which I think is yeah such an interesting, you know, and obviously unintended side effect of the government's anti-strike legislation. Unions often describe striking as a last resort, something their members very much don't want to do, but they've been uh, left with no other choice. Their backs are to the wall, and so they, they, they simply have to have to go on strike. But we know that strikes also have the effect of building class consciousness, changing the way people relate to their bosses, and, and can be exciting and enlivening to be a part of. How much have you encountered that aspect during the recent strikes? 
Yeah, the, be- the best quote I can kind of use to sum up that is um, a friend of mine the other day sent me something from Eugene Debs, who's, you know, the American trade unionist, who said he found ecstasy in the hand clasp of a comrade. Um, and I think that, you know, captures a, a lot of the experience of, of kind of striking and, um, you know, and being on a picket line. You know, I think I think one story that um, kind of sticks with me is that I was reporting on an article um, about Royal Mail using Ride, who are a last mile delivery app to supply um, strike-breaking workers on communication workers' union strike dates. And I met this guy called Bryn, and Bryn had signed up through Ride um, for shifts um, with Royal Mail without realising that these were strike days and without realising that um, Royal Mail was in dispute with the CWU. And despite the fact that he had, you know, big financial worries he said to me you know when I pressed the button to cancel their shifts I didn't know how I was going to pay my rent or bills he still cancelled them and you know when I asked him why he had done that part of his logic was the fact that he had actually been already involved in industrial dispute um, earlier in the year or um, the last year with the delivery platform Stuart in the UK's longest running gig economy strike over the fact that Stuart cut minimum delivery pay And he was saying, you know, I can see what Royal Mail are doing. They are following a model that has been pioneered by companies like Deliveroo and Uber Eats, where, you know, they bring in drivers on initially high pay through a kind of gig economy model. And then once they have established that demand for shifts, they just bring the pay down. So that was really interesting. And I think um, kind of speaks to a broader class consciousness that is um, the, the, the act of striking can bring. Another example that comes to mind, I think, is um, I saw that the Southampton dockers refused to unload shipments um, in support of the dockers um, dispute in Liverpool. I also do think, though, um, that, you know, unions have articulated their struggle as part of a shared fight. And that inherent broadening is really useful in the way that we've talked about with, you know, kind of making coalitions with um, with the public that can kind of cement public opinion and mobilise it in a way that provides leverage rather than just kind of being wishy-washy. But I think that that can also be taken too far. Um, When I'm on picket lines and I speak to workers, workers are very much often adamant that their dispute is their dispute. And I was reading a Guardian article that came out the other day that was titled, um, Striking Workers Are Telling the Truth About Britain. No wonder politicians want to silence them. Um, That basically was saying, you know, workers are filling a political vacuum with their ideas um, in striking and in in so striking are, are fighting for all of us. But the problem is that the the article kind of ends up reducing disputes to fighting for all of us rather than seeing these disputes as, you know, individual disputes made up of, of, you know, workers and employers. And, you know, there's a line in the article that says, you know, the risk is that um, strikers' goals become fragmented and inconsistent over time. But you have to accept that workers' goals already are fragmented. You know, unions are engaged in specific disputes um, about specific issues. And that can kind of be forgotten, I think, when you broaden things out too much. Even on the railways, you know, you have ASLEF and the RMT, they both might be in dispute, but they're in dispute about very different things. You know, ASLEF are in dispute over pay and, you know, the RMT are in dispute over all sorts of things, you know, including job cuts. Do you think we're likely to see trade union membership and militancy rise in sectors that are currently not strongly unionised? Or are we more likely to get further action in those sectors where the unions are already strong? Do you think we need to see the abolition of the anti-union laws to see real growth and expansion into into new sectors? I think that, you know, um, 
Um, I've been to panels and I've, I've been to events where people will put forward all sorts of different solutions to the situation that you know unions find themselves in today. And sometimes that is repealing anti-trade union laws and sometimes that is you know mass expansion membership and sometimes that's um, putting resources into workers who are, are kind of aren't currently organised. Often these strategies, uh, it's a bit like a pick, game of pick up sticks, you know, it's, it's kind of not necessarily obvious, um, you know, if, if one will lead to another or, or what, what the path forward um, is. And that's really hard, you know, and it's and it's very difficult. I think there are encouraging signs. So for instance, one of the groups that have really come into the fray for this wave of strikes are charity workers who are not historically associated with kind of high levels of unionisation. And in fact, kind of a big rationale of charity sector workers has been their commitment to low wages and, and kind of terrible conditions as a part of their love for the job. And it's almost kind of been required. And now we're seeing, you know, workers organising at shelter. And so that's, so it's, that's interesting that the, um, this strike wave is, is including workers um, who we might not have seen being organised at other times. Keir Starmer has ordered the shadow cabinet not to appear on picket lines, but he has, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, pledged to repeal the new anti-union law, uh, although, of course, you know, th- there's a question around how much one can believe uh, Keir Starmer's pledges. Um, what's your assessment of how Labour has approached the strikes and, and how much do you think the unions need the party support? So a lot of the stuff that Keir Starmer said about workers is actually not so surprising. Um, a lot of it's contained in the um, Green Paper, a New Deal for Working People, including the fact that um, the Labour Party is committed to introducing electronic balloting. So I know that there are kind of serious questions about Labour's commitment to, you know, and, and Starmer's commitment to keeping pledges that have been made. Um, you know, obviously that's not, he's not got a great track record on that. But I, I do think that the the fact that the discussion around Labour's position on unions became so bogged down in whether or not um, ministers were, you know, able to appear on picket lines. Unions weren't that concerned about whether ministers were appearing on their picket lines. I also think that, you know, workers that I spoke to uh, seemed to find the idea of ministers popping up on a picket line for about 30 seconds for a photo and leaving, you know, incredibly grating and, and a kind of form of union cheerleading. So I think that, you know, Labour's new deal for working people with the stipulation that kind of whether or not Labour uh, or the extent to which Labour will implement it, um, you know, I understand people's hesitancy and questions around that. You know, there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there um, for unions. You've been writing for Navarro as their Labour movement correspondent since September 2021. Can you talk about what that experience has, has been like, whether you felt a, a very palpable shift in workers' confidence over that time? And have there been any aspects of covering Labour struggles in the UK that have been particularly surprising to you? Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been absolutely incredible. You know, when I started, I was doing a bit of research and some reading and I ended up reading this um, Hobsbawm article where he spoke about, um, you know, how the strength of the union movement can't be captured by, you know, a straightforward curve on a graph um, showing union membership. And he speaks instead about how trade union movements often grow in these moments of kind of jumps, leaps and explosions. And he speaks about these kind of unpredictable upsurges and peaks as being produced by um, accumulations of inflammable material, which only ignite periodically as if it were under compression. And so he you know, concludes the essay by basically saying there's a difference between, you know, the accumulation of inflammable materials and their ignition. And I guess part of my job has been trying to work out whether we're seeing 
kind of a stacking up of a bonfire or, or kind of someone, you know, lighting the spark. That's kind of a particularly difficult job against a backdrop of where we've had so many previously forecasted comebacks of organised labour that have then forestalled. Um, and I think then there's also a difficulty about doing this on the left where you're never wanting to be in a position of, you know, trying to pour water on the fire of the renewal of, of organised labour. But, you know, speaking to workers, and, and my job is, is you know, really amazing, and I'm, I'm kind of endlessly um, inspired and um, interested in the people I meet. You know, I've met people who have taken out loans to pay for the petrol to literally reach the picket line so they can, you know, come and protest. I've met people who joined the union, you know, movement kind of 30 years ago, thinking they were joining just to literally deal with a, a racist bullying boss, and are now, you know, shop stewards who are sort of uh, meeting and interacting with um, you know workers who are going to strike break through agencies on the day and then getting them to sign up to the union there and then um, you know I've met young people who have organized their workplace uh, when they didn't even know what a union was at the start of the year it's really you know amazing um, I think the thing that I find that is missed kind of at the national level in disputes is that while a lot of the disputes are about pay um, and that workers will often speak to me about pay I think that that can actually miss a lot of how bad work really is and it makes sense for trade unions in their communications to centre pay because you know most of us get paid and therefore it's a good way into a kind of common sense discussion but you know but when I'm speaking to workers often pay can be kind of subsidiary to people saying you know these are my conditions or that there's a more complicated link between pay and conditions and you know workers will say I'm not willing to put up with these conditions and this kind of pay I think the best example of this for me is Amazon and so I was interviewing um, a group of about six Amazon workers who work in Coventry and they were balloting for the first legal strike action in the UK at an Amazon warehouse Um, and that was this is actually when they were balloting for their first ballot which is unsuccessful but they've now um, had a second ballot which is successful you know and, and in this discussion about working at Amazon you know people were saying well the pay could be better but Amazon pay is actually often better than other warehouses locally and the things that people were saying to me were about all sorts of grievances with their work and you know and the one that really stuck with me was um, one of the workers saying you know we all chip into a a kind of communal um, fund and through that fund we pay for a radio that's meant to play in the warehouse when we're working work is really boring we want some tunes and every day there's a battle between the workers and management over whether or not that radio can be played and for me that example is kind of so indicative about you know why people join unions and uh, and how you come to be politicised, you know, and and, um, and how bad work is and how tyrannical bosses can be and how sometimes it can be the really small things that actually make the kind of grind of work, you know, unacceptable. And and, and, and that by focusing kind of solely on pay or, and seeing these disputes as, as only um, in, in connection to a cost of living crisis, we miss the fact that work has become miserable for so many people. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.